Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're, we're back, Dad. We are. We're back for Invested Podcast at last. Thank we got you this- all for bearing with us for the last couple of weeks. We had to uh, work on something that we're doing for all of you that we will announce as soon as we can. We're very excited about it, but we want it to be all finished and perfect before we tell everybody about the details. 100% right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's move right on. We're going to go in and talk to you guys about the Berkshire meeting that happened um, a little less than a month ago. and. Yeah. And we wanted to talk about it for weeks, but we just haven't had a chance. So we are diving in right now. So I think we should start, shall we? Let's start. So, okay. yeah. All right. So I told everybody that when we come back, we're going to tell them like the high points of Berkshire. So here's for those of you who didn't listen to the last three episodes, Berkshire Hathaway recently had its annual shareholder meeting, which is a huge, essentially, convention of shareholders in Berkshire Hathaway in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's held at the beginning of May every year. And uh, we did not go because we've been so busy working on this somewhat secretive project. But um, Dad watched it on the live feed, which is a cool new streaming option. Last year they streamed it online and this year they did as well. And Dad watched it and uh, I did not. I read the reports about it online, which I had mentioned to you guys that you should read as well. So we're going to talk about our impressions of those things. Yeah, and this is in no certain order. This is sort of like how I threw my notes together. And I haven't covered everything but that he talked about. But I think I want to cover the main main points that we, Danielle and I wanted to talk about. And I think let's start off with just the value of Berkshire. I thought that was really interesting. What the he value, was saying. The value. What the is- value of Berkshire. He got asked a question like that because Berkshire's intrinsic value is driven by operating businesses that Berkshire owns 100% of that are not uh, part of the public market. You know, they're not there. He has things like Coca-Cola in there, which is a public stock. But he also yeah. has Seas Candy, which is wholly owned by Berkshire. You can't buy that stock separately. Oh, so you're talking about only the private companies that Berkshire owns? Nope, it's both. It's everything they own, all their real okay. estate, everything they own, everything all piled in are the assets. But what this question was about is how can we look at the at the book value of the company and have any good idea about what it's really worth, given that they're not marking up these private businesses to their real value? Okay. All right. So book value. Book value is the value if you sold, if you folded the company, closed it, wound it down, and sold everything off and paid off all the debts, right? Yep. And that's what you have left is the money you'd have left. And what accountants are supposed to do is give you a pretty good idea of what that would be, right? In a conservative way. If if you sold everything off and paid everything off, of what that amount would be. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah, That's okay. like, okay, well, if we liquidate this company, how much will I have left? And what this... So how is there a question about that? Well, this guy is basically saying, look, you've got companies in there like Seize Candy that you bought for $25 million, and today it's making $65 million a year. And they haven't marked it up. So it's still on the books at $25 million or less, and it's uh... worth at least $650 million. And Buffett has 50 or 60 of those. So that the yes, fifty or sixty companies that are still marked to the price they bought it at yeah. on their balance sheet. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, which can make a big difference. 
So well, I guess we're assuming they've all gone up in value. Well, the ones but that yeah, here's, here's if they the thing. have, if they haven't gone up in value, let's say they failed, then by generally accepted accounting principles, those must be written down to zero. That makes sense. So you can't write up the winners; you can only write down the losers. That makes sense. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, if you owned, there's a company called um, Alexander Baldwin over in Hawaii. They're okay. dealing with the same problem. It's owned exactly. by Berkshire Hathaway. No, but it's a it's a big company that has a lot of assets. They own land okay, all the way across Maui. Separate company. Separate company, okay. but the same problem with their accounting. They bought that land back in 1910. Oh. And so it was like you know I don't know exactly. Let's say five dollars an acre. Okay. And now it's worth four thousand dollars an acre, and they own thousands of acres. But it's on the books at $5 an acre. That is so weirdly interesting. I know. It's really an, it's an artifact. So I'm trying to think of, of why that might be, right? Because like that nobody just was like, oh, that's a stupid idea. Let's do it. Somebody thought that's a smart idea. Let's do it. Because so, if, the, if the accounting company tries to go out and, and figure out, okay, what is the value of that land today in Hawaii? It might not have that tough a time. It could probably get in the ballpark, right? Yeah, because there's a real estate market and you sure. can generally get comps and that's how people determine what real estate is worth. Right. Now, on the other hand, how do you figure out the value of these 60 different businesses and come out with a value that management is going to agree to and that your accountants agree to? The accountants want it less and management wants it more, unless you're Warren Buffett, in which case you want it less. So you end up with this big fight. And so the accounts have decided, what the heck, we're just going to keep it really conservative. Okay, wait a second. They refuse to mark to market, as in like mark to market, meaning like they refuse to put a new value or an updated value on a company. But it's the same with land as well. They yep. can't even, like even something with a generally defined marketplace. Right that is relatively liquid, much more liquid than a private company marketplace. Right. Even in that case, they can't market to what the actual amount would be if they could sell it tomorrow. Nope. They just keep it on the books that at the purchase is price. wild. Is that wild? So some companies have huge hidden value. And Berkshire is one of them. It has this enormous amount of value. So for example, as of the end of 2016, the book value for Berkshire was roughly $119 a share. All right. Now, Buffett has said he will buy that stock at 120% of book value. So whenever it comes down, in this case, to about 144, he would be a buyer. Okay. All right. What's it at now? Do you know? 160-ish, uh, 165. Okay, so not, not there. Not there. Um, and so what this question was about is, are you going to set the floor? In other words, is the board going to authorize you and will you buy the stock when it gets to 144? Because Buffett says he would be interested in doing that. And his answer was really interesting. It was like, no, no, we we are very um, shareholder friendly. And so we are going to let the stock price drop like a brick right through the 144 if we want to. And the board will instruct us to buy it at the best price we can possibly get. So he's not okay. going to set the floor which was great. I loved hearing that. 
So a lot of people assume that as soon as it gets to 144, Buffett's a buyer, but that's not the case. He's going to wait and let it slide right through 144 and get it as low as he can get it. Somebody else will have to put the floor in because he's not going to do it. Okay, let me just translate what you're saying here. First of all, you said that there's a floor. And I think what you mean by that is at $144 per share, if everyone knows, you know, imagines that Buffett is going to buy his own stock, that they will then also buy it at 144 therein creating kind of a, an imaginary floor, like it won't go below that, right? Well, you, you actually defined floor perfectly, but this guy was assuming that Buffett would do that. That he would buy it at 144. Yeah, and Buffett was yeah, saying, that's no, I, I won't. But that's what I was saying is like, if Buffett does then buy oh, it Buffett at 144, does, yeah. then, then also everybody else is going to go, oh, I better buy it right now before it goes back up. Well, in fact, what's going to happen is people are going to buy it at 144, assuming that Buffett is going to buy it there. <laughs> They're going to preempt it. And Buffett was very clear to say, don't count on me. Okay. <laughs> Don't count on me. He doesn't in other words, want that to happen. <clears throat> in other words. No, he doesn't want it to happen. He would much prefer to buy it at 80 than at 144. It's a much better deal for the shareholders of Berkshire if he's buying it at 80. So all those people who are going to buy it at 144 and think it can't go down. It can go down. Mm -hmm. It can go down. So okay. that was, I thought that was a really good, good one. That's right. weird because I would expect a lot of companies – who are supposed to be shareholder friendly like this is i guess we talk about this a lot i would expect them to say hey we want the stock price to be high for our shareholders so that they can sell it at a high price <laughs> right yay shareholders and buffett's like no yay shareholders who want the stock price to be super low like that's not i want to say it's not intuitive it's not what i would expect company executives to go for. No, they mostly won't because they're going to benefit from a higher price because they have stock options that would make them rich. And they're working for their own benefit, not for the benefit of shareholders per se. So, I, I, you know, when you're buying back your stock and you're paying too much for it, then you're not doing the shareholders any favor. You know, if the stock is worth $200 a share and you're buying it for $300, what what in the world are you thinking, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's really a short term versus a long term view on like what exactly is helpful to shareholders, exactly. because for people who want to sell short term, obviously a higher price is what they're looking for. But for people who are holding on to a company for a very long time, looking for genuine, real underlying value and the price to reflect that, then a company that has a difference in their price and value and the price is lower than the value and they can then use their free cash to buy back the stock at a lower price than its value. That is in a long-term way good for the shareholders. I can see that. Absolutely. Which leads us to the next point. Uh, in, oh, in what's the, the next point, Dad? Which was Apple and IBM. So, oh, okay. Yeah, this is, this is what I found interesting, the tech stock discussion. Yeah, because Buffett bought IBM and has recently been piling into Apple big time and, um, and actually selling out a chunk of his IBM position. And mm -hmm. IBM is a famous stock buyback company. They bought oh, back, really? Yeah, they bought back half of their stock since 1996. And they, oh, yeah, I think you've mentioned that before. Yeah. So all of this stock buyback accrues to the benefit of a shareholder if it's deemed done cheaper than the intrinsic value of the business. All right. Mm -hmm. So Buffett sells off 20% of his ownership of the stock 
and the stock immediately drops on this news from about 180 down to 150. And guess who benefits? Buffett with the rest of his 80%, because now IBM is buying back its stock at 150 instead of 180, which gets him more shares for every dollar they spend. Does that make sense? Yes. Are you saying he did that on purpose? In other words, if you were cynical, <laughs> you might argue. Well, because let me just throw in here. I found it very interesting that he didn't sell all of his ownership. I mean, he owns a big chunk of IBM. Do you know how much he owns? Yeah, he owns about 8% of the company, or he did. Now he's dropped it down to about 6%, I think. Okay, so 8% to 6%. Obviously... Anytime Warren Buffett sells comp sells shares in a company, it's huge international business news. He knows that. So when he did it, I thought it was kind of weird that he sold off only like whatever, what more than twenty percent, twenty one percent, yeah, something like that of his um, of his holdings because it would naturally be a big vote of no confidence, no confidence in the company. Right. Yeah. And you'd expect to see the stock price fall. Yeah. Then, so it's he, kind of, I just thought it was kind of weird. Well, then he wrapped up by saying, and I might buy more later. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went on at this guy's question. The guy's question was, hey, Warren, you always told us to buy what you know and that you don't understand, that you need to understand yeah. the business and that you're not a tech guy. And yeah. here you are. Good what, question. What turned you around on this whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And Charlie Munger said, I think it's a good sign you bought Apple. You've gone crazy or you're learning. One, one or the other. <laughs> Either way, it's good. <laughs> and Buffett Either said, way, it's entertaining. Buffett said, you know, he's still got a big position in IBM. Um, and he just went, you know, maybe I'll turn out to be one out of two instead of 0 for 2 because Apple has been going up lately. Um, and he's basically said, look, Apple is a more of a consumer goods type company now. Yeah. Much more of a consumer goods company. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure what he thinks about Apple or, or IBM. I think he thinks IBM is probably a business services type company now, not a tech company. So neither one of these really qualifies as high tech per se. Well, this is what I find really interesting is the supposed distinction between tech companies and non-tech companies. I think you know, 10, 15 years ago when Warren Buffett first started talking about how he was not interested in tech companies because he didn't understand them, that distinction made sense. They were different than regular companies. Now there's no difference. I mean, even so-called regular companies have huge tech components to their business. They just have to. And I, I don't, I, I just, I'm not sure that that distinction is really strong enough to make a difference. It's it's like a distinction without a difference at this point. I think if you said, well, if you defined a tech company or a high tech company as a business that has to invent its next generation and destroy its old generation in order to move forward, you mm -hmm. would see a difference between that and like an Apple, which is now a consumer goods company. Because Apple doesn't have to invent anything. Microsoft doesn't have to invent anything. All they have to do, I mean, IBM doesn't have to invent anything. All they have to do is buy whatever is the new thing. Because that company won't be even in the ballpark of point. the kind of, yeah, I mean, you can take all this free they can cash. Just, they can buy their way through development. Yeah, exactly. 
they don't have to develop it. So that like Intel has to develop its own chips. It has to come up with new chips or it's going to be out competed by AMD or somebody. And so if if you have to develop it in-house, you can't just go outside your company and buy it. You're a tech company. And yeah. that's a very different kind of business than what Apple's in. I mean, Apple doesn't have to invent anything anymore. If, if Samsung comes up with the latest and greatest new thing in an iPhone type development, Apple can copy it just like Samsung copied them and just move it into their into their uh, platform. So Apple is a platform kind enterprise of. company and I'm stuck in their environment. I mean, I'm completely wrapped up in their environment and I don't need them to be the cutting edge. I just want them to continue to develop their environment and keep and keep up with people. That's all I need. And I think I'd be I the think, same way. I think you experience it that way. I'm not sure that's actually true on the company side. I mean, it's constant innovation. It's constantly choices between, you're right, they can buy companies to develop, but they've got to choose what companies they're going to buy and how that's going to fit into Apple's universe. And then they have to integrate them seamlessly before they roll it out to the consumer. I mean, that's all innovation. And if some other company does that better, then they're going to take them over. Maybe. So, maybe they're going to take them over. Because remember, you've got this huge switching moat, this big environment that yeah. I'm all wrapped up in. I Honestly, it's hard to imagine somebody being able to pull that off where they're going to get me out of Apple. I, I, yeah. And I, I'm, in a way, arguing against my own point, which my own point is that <laughs> there's not much of a distinction between these companies and so-called tech companies. Um, but... I think maybe it's becoming more of a distinction between early stage companies and very developed companies and entrenched behemoth companies. And I think Apple, Google, Amazon have been around for so long at this point, they are entrenched behemoth companies yeah. that have tech at their core business, but they do so many things that uh, they're hardly you know, developing and their entire business is based on that development, which is how it is at an early stage company and even some, you know, high growth developed companies. I mean, look at like Snapchat just IPO'd. That's a tech company. I mean, come on. They don't have any other business besides pure new technology. I don't have any clue about anything like that. I don't know what to think about <laughs> those guys. Dad, was... do you know what Snapchat is? No. Well, kind of. I mean, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I don't even want to know. Okay. I, I, what I do want to tell you is that Buffett said something extraordinary here when he was talking about um, how you go about figuring out whether this company or how you go figure out an industry like an Apple, right? Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, he said good, that good. he said that you know basically if you go. Um, out and just start looking for what Buffett called scuttlebutt or just rumors or just trying to understand what's going on in the industry by asking people. He mm -hmm. says, you just learn a lot by asking a lot of questions. And he said, if I got interested in an industry, um, let's say I was interested in the coal industry, which might, by the okay. way, be a clue. I don't know. <laughs> say if I talked to, he said, if I talked to the head of each coal company and said, if you had to go away for 10 years and put your money into a competitor, which one would it be? 
Hmm. Like just ask each CEO of each coal company that same question. Which competitor would you put your money in if you had to go away for 10 years? And then the second one is if you're going to go away for 10 years and you were going to short one competitor, which one would it be? And if you said, if you do that with 10 companies in an industry, you'll have a really, you'll have a better fix on that industry than, than the CEOs do. I thought that was I mean, really a cool shortcut. If you can get I a hold of those I think that's very guys. cool. Is that a shortcut for well, people who are not Warren Buffett? Well, that's the question. Could you actually get a CEO to talk to you? And the answer is no. no. So there's but, no way. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe I could get them to get him to talk to me. Yeah, Just, you might be able to. I we can't. Could, and we could stick it up on our website. Can't. That would be so cool to just do like an industry database based on those two questions to 10 CEOs. Dad, come on. It's the second anyone knows it's going to be public, nobody will talk to you. Oh, you're right. Yeah, there is that. Well, if it was anonymous, though. In come other words, on. you can vote for everybody, including yourself. But- <laughs> Or maybe you should say so you can vote for everybody, but everybody not Everybody would vote for themselves. And so maybe the only thing it would actually give us is which one does everyone want to short? Yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe that would be true. <clears throat> okay, next thing that he jumped into that I really was interested in was that he they were talking about Jeff Bezos at Amazon as being the best CEO in the country. Yeah, so another another company that used to be considered a tech company, which they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, and is now like a fully legitimate integrated company. Yeah, basically Buffett said, look, I was just too dumb to realize what was going to happen, and I didn't think he could scale, much less have any idea about, you know, AW, Amazon Web Services, the cloud. None of that was in Buffett's mind. And here's this guy who's disrupting retail. And while he's disrupting retail, he goes over and disrupts the technology industry. Big enough to maybe get Buffett questioning his IBM uh, investment. So he just said, this guy's a brilliant execution. Um, And he said he laid it all out in the Amazon 1997 annual report. It's all right there. Just unbelievable. I mean, I agree. He's done an incredible job. I don't think anybody could have predicted that it was actually going to work out. Like that's this. What Are you kidding said. me? No, Charlie just piped right in. He said, oh, it was really easy to miss this. It was not obvious um, that this was going to work out. And I think it's just really brilliant execution. No regret at missing these at all. And and basically, he, Charlie thought it wasn't Amazon that they missed. That was that was a too hard one. It was uh. Google that they missed. Like he really? thinks Google was not too hard to get. They just missed it. He says, I think we screwed up on that. He says, but we don't miss them all. And that's our secret. We don't I'm miss them I'm trying to think what was going on with Google. Like, I wonder what time period they were talking about when, well, they, when they looked at it. Got to be after the IPO. It came out at about 80. I bought it at about 200. And Google was pretty clearly a major franchise, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Know. I mean, they... Um, I think they mentioned that Geico was advertising on Google and that's how it came to their attention because they own Geico. And I think Munger said that he realized with every click, Google was getting paid and it was just the simplest business. <laughs> right, exactly. So <laughs> I mean, obviously the question was whether everyone would keep using Google or if somebody else would show up and do a better job at that, but yeah. they didn't and Google has won. Yep, exactly. Hey, we're going to do... Um, 
we're going to do. I want to leave another chunk of this for next week. So yeah, let's let's keep talking about it next week. Okay. And um, here's here's what, what I want to talk Dad? about. The, okay. Like, what can we look at to determine market value? Right. Is there uh, anything like overall market value? Yeah. Is the market too expensive? Is it too cheap? How do we look at that? What oh, is your cool. legacy? Yeah, we just spent a bunch of time talking about that. Exactly. So now we got Buffett's view. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, what do you think about EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, which is used by lots of hedge funds rather than earnings, um, oh. and a whole bunch of other stuff? USG, United USG? States Gypsum, USG. It's a company that Buffett owns. That was an interesting question. Um, yeah, we got. There's a bunch more stuff we'll talk about. So let's let's uh, sign off for now, and we'll see you guys next week. Okay, you guys, I want to add, Dad, quickly that um, we are reading Misbehaving by mm. Richard Thaler. So Invested Book Club is on, guys. Get the book. Misbehaving Thaler is the author. And um, and we're going to get into this behavioral economics fascinating little mix of stuff coming up here. Awesome. All right. Well, All until right. then, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. See Bye. ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play. <laughs>